I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of the Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent. Five yeah. percent. Right. I'm time. so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. Five p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, uh, let's watch full length. length. Oh, wait, let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, ya. See you next month. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to mutinyradio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer Aspen. home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse or Pestic. you can listen live Pestic. every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs>
Les llorona mi gente lucha contra leyes racistas. Contra leyes racistas en Arizona, allá arriba, allá arriba. Allá arriba, allá arriba, allá arriba. Yo no soy de la migra. Yo no soy de la migra. Ni lo seré, ni lo seré, ni lo seré.
Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, Hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go Do 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 here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side Sugar Pump Fairy came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat Went to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. All right. Ha. Jackie is just speeding away. Thought she was James Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that fashion. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 Good morning, everybody. This is the B. 
And we're coming at you from Mutiny Radio on the corner here of 21st Street and Florida in the Mission District of San Francisco, the heart of the mission. And this is Mutiny Radio, and I'm the bee. And at 10 o'clock every Saturday morning, we bring you labor news, opinion, commentary, history, news and awareness by, for, and about working people like you and me. And we had that nice opening opening set there we started the last one we heard was Lou Reed of course take a walk on the wild side from 1972 one of the real classics of the gay rights movement and today we celebrate or this week we celebrate albeit in our homes Stonewall moment when uh Gay people stood up and looked around and saw each other and saw how strong they could be. Um, before that, we had Amazing Grace from Judy Collins, and that song, of course, has connections to the history of the African slave trade. It was written by a man named John Newton, who was in his regular day job, a slave trader, and realized what he was doing was uh, against God. He professed to believe in God. John Newton, Amazing Grace. And then Las Cafeteras, La Bamba Rebelde, a rebellious bamba. About people getting together, the Chicanos, getting together and uniting with other people to make a mighty movement. La Bama Rebelde. And then to begin, we had a snippet of the Internacional played by Kerry Miraji. Kerry Miraji, a Japanese um, classical guitarist. <coughs> And playing the Internacional. This is, of course, a labor and love show. And we have certain credos that it does good to repeat every now and then and go back over. Um, Things that we hold dear at this radio station. Ideas. And the first one is, one of the most important ideas of this show is labor history. And this is what Utah Phillips said about that. We don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. The kids don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. 
We have child labor laws. These were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for by working people. People like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit. That is a credo here at Labor and Labor and Love Radio. Um, how about another one? When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape itself, that's when you know it's a war on women. That's when you know. Let's think about immigrants. What about immigrant workers? Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals bullshit, which Mr. Trump has taken up again, is just a 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income equality and wage stagnation. You're poor and broke because you're not making enough money. You're not getting paid enough money for the work you do. Please use your brains. The existence of another poor working person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Hello. And then, you know, you go to parties and there's always a person who goes, you start talking about something and, well, I'm just not into politics, you know, I just don't follow. And the DSA of Los Angeles says, oh, you're just not that into politics. Your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low. They use the power to raise your rent. They use their power to deny you coverage, to try to cut back on your coverage, as Mr. Trump is now shamelessly doing. In the middle of a pandemic where we've lost 125,000 people and counting, Mr. Trump wants to take away people's health insurance. Ooh. Ooh. Not good. 
about this one? So let me see if I get this right, a woman says. Uh, I can't get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant till six weeks. I'm not allowed to get my tubes tied to prevent any more pregnancies because, once again, it has to be someone else's rules what I do with my body. Cut funding to Planned Parenthood so now I can no longer get the cheap birth control to prevent a pe pregnancy. Not all insurance covers birth control. Oh, yeah, cut funding to CHIP, to WIC, and food assistance, making it harder for single mothers to take care of the child they were forced to have. <laughs> I think I've got it. Government can't tell you what guns you can own because that's violating your rights as an American citizen. But it's totally okay for them to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body. Are my rights being violated or is it just because my rights as a woman aren't as important as other people's? Hmm. Last one. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silence, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. So those are the things we hold dear on this show. want to talk for a little while now about Bayard Rustin. And Rustin is one of those uh, one of those people who was so influential but not very well known in and around the civil rights movement and other related movements. Uh, fact, the fact that he was gay just adds another dimension to uh, his struggle, and he is one of our un one of our labor cards because he was a labor activist as well. He provided a lot of connections between the civil rights movement and the labor movement. So here it is, uh, unsung hero Bayard Rustin. <laughs>
from a show called Hollywood Insider. no places to eat, or they will be integrated. Divided, rusted, divided, reasons for people to be together. He spearheaded the March on Washington in 1963. King embraced nonviolence as a result of his association with Rustin. Rustin persuaded boycott leaders to adopt complete nonviolence teaching them Gandhian nonviolent direct action, where being a gay man drove him out of leadership. So he worked behind the scenes. Strom Thurmond called Rustin a communist draft dodger homosexual. He also implied there was a gay connection between King and Rustin. Strom Thurmond, that is, a senator. It didn't stop Rustin from pursuing equality for all. His perseverance proves he didn't let the words distract him, tending to eliminate this type of hatred. Rustin was a class warrior. that he was gay isn't essential to the ultimate picture. It just adds another dimension to his personality. So he struggled to achieve not only on an organization level, but on a personal level. What he achieved 
cheap. Sisters League, proud humanitarian, aided people from Vietnam. Hired Rustin fought to defend liberty and justice for all. Should be ubiquitous in civil rights and labor activism in the United States. The only way to guarantee that his legacy is never forgotten is to continue to fight for the things that he fought for. legacy is righteous, so let's make sure we defend his memory as passionately as he defended our rights. Sat out World War II. A real uh, pioneer in many ways, a person whose example should be followed. All right, let's get on now to our worldwide labor connection. Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 26, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, 200,000 seafarers are stuck at sea because of the pandemic. How women workers will be affected by a green tech recovery. The Labor Start report about union events and rapping. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions, saying these ain't the friends to be choosing out for themselves, not for others. This is Radio Labor. Just imagine being on a ship for 15 months and not having seen your wife, husband, children, or families in that time. 
That is Steve Trousdale talking about the 200,000 seafarers who have been stuck on ships because of the COVID-19 lockdown. Another 200,000 have been left without income because they can't board their ships. Mr. Trousdale is the inspector coordinator of the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF represents 20 million workers in almost 700 unions. It has started a campaign called Enough is Enough in support of the seafarers. I asked Mr. Trousdale about the seafarers confined to the ships. On any given month, around 100,000 seafarers have changed over on vessels across the world. And we estimate that the COVID-19 pandemic hit the maritime industry. More than 200,000 seafarers who have completed their contractual obligations are waiting to go home. And of course, that means there are at least 200,000 seafarers waiting to start their tours of duty. The ITS Enough is Enough campaign comes off the back of repeated calls to governments uh, where we've been asking them to ease restrictions and make practical exceptions for seafarers so that they can seek medical attention, step ashore to relax, just even take a walk, uh, and of course, go home to their families. Seafarers accepted that they were unable. us to leave their ship, we will do whatever we can to assist them. You know, there's a lot of talk about and hundreds of WhatsApp, Viber and Facebook messages, the overwhelming majority of which are seafarers simply asking to go home. Seafarers are reporting to us that they are suffering from fatigue, depression and other mental health issues associated with having been on board for 12, 13, 14 or even 15 months in some cases. I mean, just imagine being on a ship for 15 months and not having seen your wife, husband, children or families in that time. This in itself is inhumane. But then add the fact that they might not have been paid for three, four, five or more months as well. So there is no money going home to support their families. Or that they don't have sufficient food and water on board. 
This is the reality for many seafarers, and so how can anyone object to a seafarer exercising his or her rights? What do you mean they're not being paid? They're on the ships. Are they not deserving of pay? They've got an employment contract, and they are entitled to a monthly wage. Unfortunately, uh, this is one of the biggest problems that the ITF and its inspectorate fight, um, and that is the uh, non-payment of wages, sometimes for two, three, four, five months, but sometimes for even longer than that. Some companies feel that they can neglect their contractual obligations and just withhold seafarers' money. Last year alone, in 2019, the ITF inspector recovered $43 million in owed wages that were not paid to seafarers that they recovered and gave back to the seafarers of the world. Unions around the world are demanding that post-pandemic economic recoveries include decent work for women. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. As the pandemic is forcing countries to address how they will reboot their economies, the labor movement is pushing for more emphasis on green, sustainable technologies. As part of this push, Industrial Global Union organized a webinar on green tech, a future worth fighting for. The question of how women workers will be affected was highlighted. The webinar was moderated by Industrial Communications Officer Walton Pantland. He talked to Industrial's Equality Officer, Armel Sebi. Green tech also incorporates Industry 4.0 and the shift from blue-collar to white-collar work. And clearly in the future, we're not going to need as many strong men to pound steel and carry heavy weights because we'll have machines that do that. So I wonder what that means for the gender makeup of our workplaces. Is this an opportunity for more women to get highly skilled, well-paid jobs? Amel, you're our gender coordinator. What do you think? Women benefiting automatically from new technologies in terms of getting highly skilled and well-paid jobs, it's not automatic, actually. Because what we see today, when we look at the presence of women in science, technology, and engineering and mathematics jobs, we usually call them STEM jobs. What we see is that the woman's presence is very low. Embedded social and cultural norms and also stereotypes and behavior are barriers for women, uh, barriers that prevent actually women of joining and staying in these in these jobs, uh, technological or engineering jobs. So we we should really be aware that women working in STEM jobs for them the the workplace is very different than for men, and uh, it is why the proportion of women is among high skilled jobs in technology or in engineering is quite low, and it is particularly true for engineering and computer science and, and ICT. So what we see is like women would drop out from these science, technology, or engineering, mathematics uh, discipline in a very disproportionate numbers during their higher education or in the transition to the world of work or even in the career. And it's why it is important for trade unions to really address this. Women would face in engineering or in, in ICT or computer science, glass sailing, wall, uh, glass walls. So they are often, they often choose and they're also often chosen to occupy more generalist and less technical or lower management position. So it, it creates a gender pay gap in, this, uh, in these sectors. A woman will, less, uh, will earn uh, less than, than their colleagues 
we, and then also one of the main barrier for the women who are working in these sectors and why they would leave actually engineering or technological jobs is because they would face constant conscious and unconscious sexism. What we see is that STEM jobs are very male-dominated, so they feel isolated. There is a, some kind of macho culture in, uh, in these jobs, and uh, so they would face conscious and unconscious sexism on a daily basis, like uh, jokes, behavior, or comments that would uh, undermine, actually, women's work or question their capacity, their competency, and would isolate them and preventing them to evolve in these uh, in these technological and in this in their careers. So, if we really want women to benefit from these green and new technology, trade unions have an important role to play. They should ensure that women would enjoy equality of opportunity and chances, and also equality of treatment in these sectors. Otherwise, the gender gaps that we that I've been mentioning now will just worsen. And the women will be the big losers of these changes that we are now seeing. And uh, they will not have access to decent work. This is Seymourie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labor. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggle of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a tiny sample of their hard work. Our top story sections included links to the flogging and imprisonment of 42 Iranian workers who demanded their pay, and the West Coast ports shutdown in the United States in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, we had many, many stories about the International Trade Union Confederation's Global Labor Rights Survey. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage are the return of safety walkouts and other protests by healthcare workers as the pandemic hits hard in countries with largely private healthcare systems. An example would be how nurses in El Salvador's nonprofit hospitals were using their break periods to protest the lack of even very basic personal protective equipment. In nearby Nicaragua, doctors who have challenged the government's decision to let the pandemic run its course without intervention have been fired, and despite this, over 700 healthcare workers have signed a petition in an effort to change state policy on COVID-19. In Brazil, school teachers struck rather than return to work as schools reopened after a regular holiday without any regard for student or worker safety. We did have some good COVID-19 news this week as the wage theft scandals in Australia, many of them exposed by the effects of the pandemic, have resulted in one state making it an offense. Globally, from Botswana diamonds to Bangladesh garments, the effects of the COVID-19 crisis are helping unions and their activist allies expose the responsibility of global brands for working conditions at the point of production. An equally common but negative trend associated with the pandemic are the attacks on media workers who have been working at exposing the shortcomings and mistakes of governments and the deliberate ignorance of employers in the face of COVID-19. Dozens have been assaulted, jailed, or murdered in the past few months. Today, stories on our site about journalists being arrested after their work exposed shortcomings in their government's pandemic response come to us from 11 countries. 
For our working women pages, our volunteers found news of huge increases in the number of assaults and verbal abuse incidents involving women retail workers in the United Kingdom as they attempt to enforce physical distancing and mask requirements amongst customers. Union reaction to more examples of gendered violence in the South African school system and how and why nurses are bearing the COVID-19 treatment burden in Lesotho. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Brazilian bank workers, thousands of whom are being sacked despite a promise that the pandemic would not result in any job losses. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Luke Rodrigue with a new Solidarity Forever. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother Well, let me spit it for you, got something to say It's because of unions, we gotta aid our work day This ain't no commercial break, my friend Unions are the peeps who brought you the weekend Probably never think about it, la di da Unions fought hard for your right to party they're out there to ease your tension with decent wages, health care, and pensions. Now it's like unions blamed for bad weather. But tell me what's wrong with solidarity forever. I want to shout it on high, get it off my chest. The story here is fighting for those who have less. So when unions are bad guys in the propaganda war, think what they've done, where they stand, who they fight for. The new Solidarity Rap was written by Luke Rodriguez and Michael Roos. It was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity.
keeping our lives. Never again will they stop us from claiming our rights. Never again will they stop us with more of their lies. Never again will they stop us so we won't organize. That was, of course, uh, our friends from North Carolina, um, a group called Fruit of Labor, and we'll play some more of those uh, later on. I want to play a couple more uh, from them, and their story is a, an inspiring one. It's happening here with the National Labor Relations Board, okay? Since 2017, Republican appointees have firmly controlled the National Labor Relations Board with a series of anti-worker decisions. MV Transportation. The decision upended 70 years of NLRB labor law requiring employers to give advance notice and bargain with unions before making substantial mid-contract changes to laws, policies, and practices not fixed by the contract. Attendance requirements, safety policies, and subcontracting unit work are typical examples. The board first banned unilateral changes in 1949 in a case against the Tidewater Oil Company. MV Transportation turns unilateral change law on its head. Under the board's new poison pill approach called the contract coverage standard, if a management rights or other contracts clause says that a broad subject area, such as assignments, schedules, or laws and regulations, is under exclusive management control, then management is permitted to make unilateral changes within the compass or scope of that clause. References to specific employment terms are no longer required. Lone dissenting board member remarked, today's decision presents a grave threat to the purpose of practice of collective bargaining. It creates a powerful incentive for employers to insist on sweeping management rights provisions. Employers will be free to change employees' terms and conditions of employment at will. The duty to bargain created by the National Labor Relations Act will effectively be set aside. And American workplaces risk returning to the era before 1935 when employers could and did exercise their power unchecked. So this basically gives an employer the right to change a labor agreement just uh, at their whim. Um, a 
allows them to give mid-contract changes to rules and agreements. Does MV Transportation authorize the employer to unilaterally announce harsher disciplinary penalties? No. Okay. The employer gets to change things like schedules, work hours, transfers, adoption of reasonable work rules. I wonder what reasonable means. At any rate, that's on the labor note um, website. Check it out. This, these are things that happen <coughs> sort of undercover out of the <coughs> out of the light of the uh, of news people, of journalists. We don't hear much about this. They're sort of a mundane, you know, labor relations board, but Little by little, and not even little by little, but much by much, they will take away your rights on the job. They will make it harder for you to <coughs> earn your living. Okay, let's keep an eye on that. Um... This is News Broke. This is a weekly feature of our show. And this one is um, Fiorentini talking Saving about lives or saving markets? Economy Apparently, that's a tough choice. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and this is News Broke's Helter Shelter series, coming to you from my one-bedroom L.A. apartment, which... After three weeks of self-quarantine, I have converted into my very own post-apocalyptic Pee-wee's Playhouse. Today's secret word is... Sacrifice! Now, you all know what you need to do when you hear the secret word, right? Dream! Today, we're looking at how defeating coronavirus will mean deflating the Dow. And yet, accepting that reality is something the president and the hardline conservatives advising him are trying to prevent at all costs. Yes, even our lives. There still is yet to be a nationally coordinated effort to end the pandemic through mass testing, mass production of medical supplies, or nationwide lockdowns, which many experts say need to happen for months. That's partially why the U.S. has the most cases of coronavirus so far in the world and counting. Instead, Trump first floated the idea of loosening social distancing restrictions by Easter Sunday because there's no better way to celebrate Jesus than by letting millions meet him in the afterlife. Trump then graciously agreed to extend the CDC guidelines to April 30th. Now, maybe that was based on science, but it was probably because he realized Tiffany was going to be visiting for Easter, and you know that would have been an awkward encounter. Oh, wonderful, we can all hug again. Yes, Tiffany, right after the egg hunt. Is she still looking at me? Either way, press conference after press conference has proven that Trump's brain truly is a magnificent cocktail of ignorance to the reality of COVID-19 and callous disregard for the human lives it claims. If we can hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number. Maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between 100 and 200,000. 
uh, we all together have done a very good job. Okay, first of all, that's not even an achievable number without nationally coordinated action. And secondly, that's not a number to brag about. Also, rest assured that no matter how many people die from coronavirus, Trump will absolutely claim he did a good job. Compared to the Black Plague, we're doing great. Compared to the Spanish flu, we're doing fantastic. Compared to the meteor that wiped out all the alleged dinosaurs, we're winning big league. But Trump's thinking is honestly more sinister than crass. Because there's one number that he and his cronies, and even media pundits, care a lot about. The stock market. And they talk about its recent slide using an alarming metaphor. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Stop the economic bleeding. Global markets just cannot shake the coronavirus. How will the president try to stop the bleeding? Yeah, the market's bleeding so much, you wonder if it's on its period. Because <laughs> she is moody. Am I right? Am I? No? No? Insensitive? It's almost like they care more about markets bleeding than people bleeding. Newsbroke has looked at the stock market before and how it's just a legal casino that gambles away our future so Jerry from Fidelity can get bottle service. The stock market isn't a good indicator for a healthy economy, given that 84% of all stocks owned by Americans belong to the wealthiest 10% of households. Yet, when it comes to coronavirus, the market seems to be the only measurement that worries conservatives. This at a time when the Fed estimates we may hit 32% unemployment, which tops unemployment numbers during the Great Depression. But who cares? How's your portfolio? In fact, some have been letting their free market flag fly a little too high, like Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. We can't lose our whole country. We, we're having an economic collapse. Uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Sacrifice? He said the secret word! <laughs> What is he saying? That seniors should be left to fend for themselves like some AARP Thunderdome? The first senior to master TikTok shall be granted a ventilator. The same sentiment was echoed by radio host and less accomplished Tiger King, Glenn Beck. I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working even if we all get sick, I'd rather die than kill the country. No, don't say that. What would we do without you? Just so we're clear, these guys are saying they're willing to kill themselves and millions of others, all to please the all-powerful line graph, representing the invisible hand of the free market. How is this not a cult? I'm starting to think Jim Jones didn't actually die. He just changed his first name to Dow. Because, like, Dow Jones is a stock market. This morbid cynicism of putting the economy or rich people's poker chips before human lives isn't just something media commentators have expressed. It's what's guiding the Trump administration's response to coronavirus and the money attached to it. The $2 trillion stimulus package has both Wall Street and lobbyists licking their chops. Even though there are stipulations and oversight committees on the money, Trump has pushed back and said implementation will pretty much be up to him and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. So we just handed over $2 trillion to a corrupt impeached president and his Treasury Secretary who earned the nickname Foreclosure King after the last recession. But on the plus side, I just bedazzled my jean jacket. It's the little things. Just listening to the way this administration explains the goal of the stimulus package gives you a sense of who they hope it helps. The assistance bill here 
which does have growth incentives, will help lead us back to a very strong economic rebound before this year is over. I think that, too. Thank I think you, we're going to have a tremendous rebound uh, at the end of the year, toward the end of the year. I think we're going to have a rebound like we have never seen before. Even now, it wants to rebound. You can see it and feel it. It wants to rebound so badly. Why are we talking about the stock market like it's getting out of a long-term relationship? It wants to rebound so badly. Dust off that red dress, hook up with some randos, and just YOLO. Maybe the market doesn't need to rebound. Maybe it needs to learn to be alone. We're all doing it. Another thing to know about that clip, besides the very overeager predictions about the market, is that the guy talking about growth incentives is Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow. No, he's not an economist, but he did play one on CNBC for many years. Kudlow's entire legacy has been about bolstering finance at the expense of people's lives. In 2002, he advocated for the invasion of Iraq because the, quote, shock therapy of decisive war will elevate the stock market by a couple thousand points. And in 2011, right after an 8.9 earthquake and tsunami hit Japan, Kudlow said this. The human toll here yeah. looks to be much worse than the economic toll, and we can be grateful for that. Grateful? Okay. Now we know what the Kudlow family Thanksgiving looks like. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the gang violence in Central America that has provided the migrant labor that has given us this affordable meal. So while everyone in the healthcare community was pleading with Trump for weeks to take coronavirus seriously, Trump instead was listening attentively to people like Kudlow, who consistently puts markets over lives. And this is what he was saying back in early March about COVID-19 from the White House press briefing room. We don't actually know uh, what the magnitude of the virus is going to be, although frankly so far it looks relatively contained and we don't think most people, I mean the vast majority of Americans are not at risk for this virus. I mean do the math. A couple million isn't the vast majority. We'll have 328 million Americans left over. That's plenty of low-wage workers. Finally, it turns out Trump's idea to have everyone back to work by Easter might have been spurred by a meeting earlier that day of some very Machiavellian minds. The White House earlier today convened a call with major Wall Street and hedge fund investors to get their views on what's happening in the markets and the U.S. economy. These individuals from Wall Street were on the call. Dan Loeb from hedge fund Third Point. Uh, Jeff Sprecher from ICE and the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, Jeff Sprecher, you might not have heard of him, but he is the CEO of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, which apparently is a thing. Uh, but you might have heard of his wife, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler, who was one of a handful of senators to sell off stock after being briefed about coronavirus. $3 million of both of her and her husband's holdings. Like, how is that legal? How is any of this legal is probably all illegal. Because even the cronies in DC and Wall Street know this economy isn't rebounding. Not while the government continues to have no game plan to test, save lives, and quarantine communities. The economy isn't just a line that goes up or down. The economy is made up of people. People who make businesses and banks a lot of money. People who are now out of work. People who can't make rent this month and who are struggling to get healthy themselves. And people who sure as hell won't be rebounding with $1,200. Maybe it's time to rethink this death duel between people and the economy. And for once, let finance make the sacrifice. Uh-oh! Ah! Thank you once
once again for watching News Broke. We really appreciate it. So make sure to like this video and also share it. Share it with all the people who need to hear it and maybe people who don't want to hear it, but they need to hear it anyway. And because the economy is made up of people, we want to hear from you. How are you doing? Um, do you still have a job? What's going on with unemployment? Um, how is your state handling this current crisis? Let us know in the comments below and we will see you soon. Hang in there. cause of all this is We've police violence. We've talked a lot about the problem of police violence on our show, but today we want to focus on a possible solution, de-escalation. Studies have shown that when police officers are properly trained in de-escalation techniques, there are far fewer fatalities. And don't just take my word for it, the U.S. military has a big focus on de-escalation training. So to talk more about this, we've brought Benari Poulton, an Army veteran with tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks for being here, Benari. So what exactly is de-escalation? Uh, well, essentially, if you're in a hostile environment or in a hostile situation, you want to bring uh, calm and, and peace to the situation as quickly and efficiently as possible. In 2014, nearly 60% of the people killed by police officers were unarmed or were involved in harmless activities, which says to me that cops are struggling to assess the threat level of civilians that they encounter. So what if someone who's unarmed is like running at you? What would you do to assess the situation? Well, generally speaking, you know, we're trained to uh, assess things like, is this person armed? Are they not armed? Do they present a danger to me personally? Do they present a danger to the people around us? Do they seem to be in danger themselves? Are they in distress? Are they coming to us for help? But when they're looking for help, we don't shoot them. <laughs> no, you okay. don't want to shoot someone who's coming to you All right. for help. The goal is to neutralize the threat using as minimal force as necessary. So when do you shoot them though? <laughs> well, uh, hopefully you don't get to that. Okay. Uh, you don't get to I that. I just want to make sure that I'm clear. <laughs> so why does the U.S. military spend so much time on de-escalation training? Well, you know, de-escalation de training is just one part of the training, um, but it's an important part. And the reason why the military spends so much time on the training is because all of this happens so quickly. Uh, decisions have to be made instantly. And you're making decisions, uh, literally life and death decisions. Um, because of that, you have to treat it with the utmost importance. When you talk about uh, having to fire your weapon, you want to ensure that that was absolutely the necessary course of action for that specific incident. All right, so currently police officers spend about 58 hours in training when it comes to using a firearm, but only eight hours of training for de-escalation. So when you were on active duty, how often were you training? The military never misses an opportunity to train its service members. So. Uh, you know, there, there is on-the-spot training uh, where you just take lessons learned and you use that as a training experience. You're going through physical training, making sure that you're physically fit. You're going uh, through health assessments to make sure that you're mentally fit. I like that. I definitely want to make sure that someone handling a gun has taken their mental health into account. Well, when you spend all your time surrounded by people who are carrying weapons, you want to make sure that, you know, they are in the right frame of mind. I've heard a lot of people saying that there's a war on cops. You've been in actual war zones, so how does it make you feel when you hear that? In terms of the military, when we're deployed, we're going to uh, actively hostile places. 
whereas the police force, uh, they are there to protect and serve their community. Ooh. So if you if you treat the, the police like they're the military, you're assuming that they're going to hostile places to begin with, and that sets up a very different relationship with the community. Okay, we, we all know the military isn't perfect. So in your experience, is having a relationship with the community and understanding them, does that make your job easier or more challenging? Well, it's essential that you understand who these people are, uh, what they expect of you, what they're looking for in you, and what you're looking for in them. I think it's very important um, that the community knows that police have their backs. Um, but it's also important that the police know that the community has their backs because if the community doesn't trust its police force, um, that's going to make the police officers' jobs that much harder. And they're going to find themselves in increasingly dangerous situations. So I think that it has to be a, a two-way street um, for everyone's benefit. Um, it'll make the community safer and it'll also make the police safer. Okay, Benari, way to show out. <laughs> you invited me. I, I did. Thank you so much. This has been really eye-opening. This conversation was really about looking at things that institutions are doing well and what we can learn from them. And I think you've provided a lot of insight. Yeah, and thank you for your service. This has been a really great conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me.
It's a mighty long road that my poor hands have hold. My poor feet have traveled a long dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rode. Your deserts was hot and your mountains was cold. I worked on your orchards of peaches and prunes, slept on the ground by the light of your moon. At the edge of your cities, you will see us, and then we come with the dust and we're gone with the wind. California, Arizona, I made all your crops, but it's no thought to organ to harvest your hops, dig the bees from the ground, pick the grapes from your vines to set on your table your light sparkling wine. America the free. Who are your ancestors? What is your creed? Who is the father and the son and the weed? Where is the spirit that saw liberty? When did you come to America? Long, long before when the buffalo won. When did your hands burn like gold? The thing that made this land pride and your joy when did you come to america i came to help you grow to harvest your crops i came to build your roads your cities and your thoughts say you don't need me but you know what you
dust in the scheme Now that you have all the things that you want Did you ever look around to see who you forgot? When did you come to America? Garden of Eden Garden of Rush Black hearts, the comforts The dream for what we fought The cross of roads is here now We forget our debt too much Leela Downs uh, singing This Land is Your Land, Your Land and My Land, sort of a compendium of uh, Willie Nelson. Pardon me. <coughs> Woody Guthrie songs. And uh, before that we had uh, the Francescas, Francesca Fiorentini, and Francesca Ramsey. Francesca Ramsey was talking to a military guy about how police and the military are different. As the guy explained, the military is trying to protect the people, and the, the police are trying to protect people, but the military is entering a hostile situation in order to take it over, right, and control it by killing people if necessary. Whereas the police are supposed to be serving the community. Somewhere this all has uh, been been forgotten. Um, Francesca Fiorentini was talking about the economy, the anti-person economy. Have you wondered why the Dow Jones average goes up ever anymore? They're dying all over the place. People are getting sick all over the place, being hospitalized. 
And the Dow sometimes loses, but often has huge, massive gains. How can that be? Well, the way it is, is this government is loaning money to big banks at 0% interest. The government This is like free money. That's why they're doing so. Big capitalist company, Taken from you, that you are loaning that money to U.S. government. Well, let's see what we got left over here. It's about time to turn towards home. July 4th. What companies or products should you be patronizing as you celebrate your 4th, however you celebrate it? Budweiser, Coors, Miller Genuine Draft, Pabst, Sam Adams. Okay, how about your cooler where you carry your swag for your barbecue? Rubbermaid is a company. They have a contract with the IBEW. If you're into sunscreen, Bande de Solieu or Coppertone, Get a Weber grill. They have union agreements. Your hot dogs are going to be Ballpark, Butterball, Hebrew National, Hormel, or Oscar Myers. Evidently not Nathan's. Hebrew National, Ballpark, Butterball, etc. Ice cream, Ben and Jerry's, of course, Briars, Good Humor, and Prairie Farm. Your kids love those snacks, huh? Cheez-Its, Fritos, Frito-Lay, Mission, Tortillas, Ritz, Ruffles, Sun Chips, Triscuit, and Wheat Thins. Face Masks by Ethics Merch. All these companies and fine products have agreements with their workers, union union agreements with their workers. So please go to the Labor 411 website for a more complete list. But let's use our power, which is one of the great powers we have as consumers, to give our custom to companies that support their workers. Okay, labor in two minutes is kind of a regular, a regular uh, feature here. And uh, two big things, actually, Governor Altgeld and the pardons, and then 
story of Helen Keller, who many people don't know was an activist, a socialist, member of the IWW. Here we go. Labor history. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1880. That was the day that Helen Keller was born in Tuscumbia, Alabama. Two years later, she lost both her sight and hearing due to an illness. With the help of a teacher by the name of Ann Sullivan, Helen learned how to communicate again. Her inspiring story was retold in the play and movie, The Miracle Workers. Keller spent the rest of her life advocating for people with disabilities, as well as a woman's right to vote and a woman's right to birth control. But did you know she was also an outspoken supporter of the cause of labor? Helen was a socialist and a member of the Industrial Workers of the World Union. In 1912, Helen sent a check to support textile workers on strike in Little Falls, New York. She accompanied the check with a letter that captured her commitment to the labor movement. She wrote of the women out on strike, quote, their cause is my cause. If they are denied a living wage, I also am denied. While they are industrial slaves, I cannot be free. My hunger is not satisfied while they are unfed. I cannot enjoy the good things of life which have come to me if they are hindered and neglected. I want all the workers of the world to have sufficient money to provide the normal standard of living, a decent home, healthful surroundings, opportunity for education and recreation. I want them all to have the same blessings I have. I, deaf and blind, have been helped to overcome many obstacles. I want them to be helped generously in a struggle which resembles my own in many ways. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1893. That was the day that Illinois Governor John Peter Altgeld pardoned Samuel Fielden, Oscar Neby, and Michael Schwab, who were imprisoned for their alleged role in the Haymarket bombing of 1886. Eight men had been accused of throwing a bomb at a workers' rally in Chicago. Four were hung, one died in prison before he could be executed, and three were incarcerated. Governor Altgeld had been born in Germany. He was a progressive leader who helped pass worker safety laws and child labor laws. Efforts to free the three Haymarket prisoners had been underway since their sentencing. During the trial, there was no physical evidence linking any of the accused men to the crime. Governor Altgeld agreed to look into the case. He issued a report outlining his findings. At the end, he concluded, quote, the trial was not fair. He wrote, quote, I'm convinced that it is clearly my duty to act. I grant an absolute pardon to Samuel Fielden, Oscar Neby, and Michael Schwab this 26th day of June, 1893. This pardon came just one day after a monument to the martyrs was dedicated at the cemetery where the five martyrs were buried. Today, part of Governor Altgeld's pardon is inscribed on a plaque on the backside of that monument. 
Governor Altgeld paid a political price for the pardon. He was attacked by the press. The Chicago Tribune attacked his German heritage, declaring there was, quote, not a drop of true American blood in his veins. He does not reason like an American, does not feel like one, and consequently does not behave like one. In 1896, he lost his bid at re-election for standing up for justice. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith. This one is about the... Um U.S. men's soccer team, a guy named Bruce Arena. Let's see what we get on it. Let me play it. It's not coming through. Okay, here's how it goes. The playing of the national anthem before sporting events is a long-standing tradition in the United States. At the controversy surrounding the Star-Spangled Banner in recent years, former men's national team coach and current New England Revolution boss Bruce Arena is over it. Playing it before the game, he said it's inappropriate I think it puts people in an awkward position, Arena said Thursday via ESPN. We don't use the national anthem in movie theaters or on Broadway or for other events in the United States. I don't think it's appropriate to have a national anthem before a baseball game or an MLS game. But having said that, I want it understood that I am very patriotic. I just think it's inappropriate. Well, okay, what does Mr. Trump have to say about that? Mr. Trump says that he won't attend the game if they don't play the, the Star-Spangled Banner. So we got a this when you look at this anthem. Um, Bruce, I would have never knelt. I'm on the record of saying that. However, I think this Colin Kaepernick situation made me realize that if someone knelt on my team, on your team for the United States men's national team, I'd ask questions why, I'd listen, and it would make me open up my mind a little bit. What are your thoughts on kneeling for the national team, or quite honestly, the national anthem in, in, in general? Well, uh, today I understand why. People are kneeling, and uh, we saw it with the women. Uh, you know, we saw it in the NFL, 
And uh, I think if they're respectful, it's appropriate. Now, I, I would tell you this. I, I'm the most patriotic person you're ever going to be around. As a national team coach at times, at the national anthem, uh, I was in tears. Honored to represent the United States in World Cups and international matches. And I think playing the national anthem is clearly appropriate at those levels. However, I question why we're playing national anthems in, in professional sporting events in our country. Uh, you know, I believe the history of the anthem was it was brought in after World War II to kind of celebrate the, uh, the baseball players and, and the people and our soldiers that participated in World War II. And then it was obviously extended to other sports to where it is today. And I think it, it puts an, people in awkward positions. We don't use the national anthem in, in uh, movie theaters and on Broadway, other events in the United States. And, and, and I, I don't think it's appropriate to have a national anthem uh, before a baseball game, an MLS game. But having said that, I want it understood. I am very patriotic, but I just think it's right, inappropriate. Right. And today it's, it's becoming uh, too big of an issue. In all seriousness, when you look at this anthem, Definitely true of baseball, which is that most of the, the majority of the players now are not from the United States. Major League Baseball especially has gone out of its way to create uh, factories almost in places like Venezuela and the Dominican Republic where young ball players are trained and oftentimes signed for long-term contracts at very low rates so the team can find the best players and pay them the least amount of money possible. Something else we have not common commented enough on, and this, this is a heavy victory. The Supreme Court says gay transgender, wor transgender workers protected by federal law forbidding discrimination. A major victory for not only LGBTQ people, but all workers. This means that the employer's right is not absolute. Employers are born, are are responsible to the law. They're not responsible just to themselves. They can't, I can't walk up to you as a worker and say, you know what, I just found out you're gay. So you're getting fired. Can't do that anymore. 
just the same way you can't do it. You can't tell someone because of their race. A, a major victory. Justice Neil Gorsuch and Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court liberal 6-3 to three ruling. They said Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, includes gay and transgender employees. Boy, more on this next week. A major victory for all workers. Time for me to get out of here now. Turn it over to the tender mercies of Scott and Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Mutiny Radio.
For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshops, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data 
bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, 100% Residential internet for only 35 a month, business packages starting at 75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Everybody, listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Let's Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Yeah, right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. Mutiny Radio.fm Mutiny Radio.fm Mutiny Radio.fm